It's Tuesday the 8th of December. Welcome to our afternoon sport deep dive. I'm Tim Gilbert. You can watch me on weekend edition Sky News Saturdays and Sundays. And Shane, Lee, I tell you what, you're getting your taste of cricket at the moment. There's so much on. So much on. Cameron Green, we'll talk about him. A brilliant 100 overnight and uh, all things AFL draft and then... A bit of motor racing as well, Timmy. Yeah, absolutely. Cameron Green, has he batted his way into the test team? We'll talk about that in just a tick. Yeah, <laughs> wrong tyres on Formula One cars. Who would have thought John Thompson's going to be with us? Kath Canooley, the former Matilda, and Rob Gilbert's going to look at the AFL draft and, and try and unstitch that for us and talk a little bit of EPL. This is Afternoon Sport. Let's get into it. Well, it's all about cricket, isn't it, Shane? To start with, uh, let's talk about Cameron Green. It was it was a bat out, wasn't it? Uh, and if it follows, it, if it follows the form lines, this century, this unbeaten century that he scored yesterday for Australia A, may just put him in this Test team. Yeah, I watched a bit of it yesterday. It was uh, fantastic. He um, he played really, really well. Yeah, you know, the, the guy's got a lot of patience. He really summed up the wicket. You saw both Pukolski and Burns miss out the top order. I suppose vying for that. Whether we will both end up opening the batting in the first test, but but Green looked class act. He got plenty of time. He's a very tall man. Generally, tall batsmen struggle against the short ball. The Indians really worked him over, and he played really, really well. Um, was really, really patient, and deserved, you know, his first hundred for Australia, albeit in a first class game. Would you pick him? I'd pick him one hundred percent. He gives us a, a really good bowling option. It puts a lot of pressure back on, on Wade now but saying that Wade <laughs> captained the T20 team the other night so he's obviously in favour with Lang and the selectors so it'd be interesting to see which way they go here Interesting that you mentioned about him captaining the team because that meant Steve Smith was overlooked because that was his opportunity, wasn't it? Uh, well, you know, it's it's not closing the door but it's a little bit of a signal Look, I think the door's shut. I, I think it is. And we, we said before, I, I don't think we want Steve Smith as captain now. I think we want him as our number one star batsman. We want him scoring hundreds every match and, and we bat around him. And that's going to be the best result for the Australian cricket team. Had quite a few injuries, don't we? We've got David Warner trying to uh, uh, fight the clock and, and, and fight Father Time. I, I, I'm looking at it now. I'd be surprised if he's going to make this test. And it almost seems a risk. It will be a risk. He will not be playing first tests, I, I believe. Um, I think he could even struggle for the series. Saying that, they have very, very good recovery and rehabilitation facilities available to the Australian cricket team. So, you know, but, you know, groin injury where you've got to run, you've got to turn, you're batting side on, um, quick signal. You know, if he rips it off the bone again, that, that could be the end of his career. So I think they'll bring him back slowly. Okay, well, uh, and the and the third T20, we've lost three on the trot now, haven't we? We won those first two one-dayers, then we lost the third one-dayer in Canberra, the first T20 in Canberra, and the other one in Sydney on, on the weekend. They really want to, look, they're completely different formats. I don't know what it's got to do with the Test match, if anything, but just uh, Australia will be pretty keen, if not desperate, for a win uh, in front of what could be a capacity crowd because uh, restrictions have lifted to that point. Yeah, big time. And the, look, the Indians are the best T20 team in the world, no doubt about that. Saying that, uh, as you said, coming to the Test Series, it's a completely different game. It'll be different teams. And uh, we're playing on our home soil where the wicket is a lot harder for, for teams coming here to Australia in our conditions. So, look, fingers crossed, but uh, we need to get the momentum back because there's nothing like being in a winning team for confidence, particularly when you're looking at blooding some young players. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I don't think we've ever seen the wrong tyre, not in recent years, put on a, a, a car in a Formula One race, but it was the most bizarre 
F1 race we've seen in a long, long time that finished early yesterday morning. And we are joined by our motorsport expert, John Thompson. Tomo, how are you? What a Grand Prix. Tim, if you could have, if you tried to write a script for it, it would be rejected by the most optimistic Hollywood producers. It was just so unbelievably far-fetched. There you have the guy who's the star of Formula One, diagnosed with COVID-19. He's got a 22-year-old young Mercedes-Benz protege brought into the team in George Russell. He was fastest in the first practice session back on Friday night and then led the Grand Prix uh, after qualifying second fastest of Valtteri Bottas. And it all sort of just evaporated. It's unbelievable. He had the race in his grasp, but it was nothing he did that actually lost it for him. It was the stuff up in the pits, as you say, with the Mercedes-Benz team who never make mistakes. It's unbelievable. And they um, they double-stacked them on a safety car period, a virtual safety car. They brought both cars in, and the team just looked flustered. They didn't have the right tyres out. They thought Valtteri Bottas was going to come in first. So half of Valtteri Bottas's wheels were put on uh, George Russell's car. And they twigged during a pit stop. I saw, and uh, the F1 commentators observed that one of the uh, wheelmen actually realised he sort of raised his hands and and knew something was wrong, which was a costly pit stop in itself. George Russell went out. He had to come back in, have the wheels changed again. It's just never happened before. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah, F1 or F up, <laughs> that's the question. <laughs> Sergio Perez, it's the first time we've had a, a, a Mexican uh, winner in a long time, isn't it? Since 1970, uh Shane, it was uh, Pedro Rodriguez back back then, uh, and he won a couple of races in 67, 68, 70. Um, but Sergio Perez, it's his 192nd Grand Prix, I think it is. He's been racing for 10 years. It's his second last race with the, the Racing Point team. He's been shifted out the door in place of Sebastian Vettel, who struggled to get out of his own way last night. And there's Sergio Perez winning a race, coming from absolute last in the field, after the first lap to, to win the race. Quite extraordinary. He drove the wheels off that thing. It's a very competitive car. And, of course, his teammate, Lance Stroll, son of the owner of the team, multi-billionaire Lawrence Stroll, uh, finished third. So it was an amazing performance for those two. And Esteban, Esteban Ocon, Daniel Ricciardo's Renault teammate, sort of lucked it into second. And I'm not taking anything away from him. He would be the first to admit that it was actually good fortune that got him there, not speed. Well, the Mercedes pit crew will be going to the room of mirrors and having a good look at themselves, won't they? <laughs> well, I think uh, the team boss, Toto Wolf was just about hang-drawing and quartering most of the team. He was very angry last night, uh, or at least on Monday, Monday morning. He was uh, incredible the way he, uh, he carried on. Where does this leave Ricardo now? Does he slip down to fifth, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He, a couple of races ago, he was looking like he could actually secure third in the championship, but... Uh, with uh, Sergio Perez taking that win, scoring a lot of points. Uh, that's moved him well ahead. It's also meant Renault's bumped down there in a three-way battle with McLaren and Racing Point for third in the Constructors' Championship. Uh, and the difference between third and fifth is about $15 million. Wow. The amount of money the teams get from the uh, Formula One organisation. So that was pretty critical. Daniel Ricciardo was a, was a little bit dirty on the whole thing. He, he paid tribute to Sergio Perez, but... You know, um, he was a bit dirty on the fact that he he also lost uh, lost some uh, time in the pits with uh, some badly badly chosen uh, arrival in the pits, badly chosen uh, calling, I should say. 
Yeah, well, they probably all need to do a little bit of work too. Uh, they have been off for a while. It's been a wobbly old year, so we'll probably excuse some of it. Just finally, uh, the supercars, I haven't had the chance to mention this, but uh, uh, under lights next year as part of the schedule, that, that's a ripping idea. Yeah, well, they, they did it uh, year before last uh, under transportable lights, if you like, some lights they brought in at Sydney Motorsport Park, the old Eastern Creek, and also in Perth at uh, Barbagillo Raceway. But they've since installed permanent lights at um, Sydney Motorsport Park uh, and they're, they're really fantastic. So that's going to be a great thing. I've often said that really supercars going up against the football codes, not doing themselves any favours, and normally motor racing circuits are in pretty inhospitable places where it's either really hot in summer or really freezing cold in winter. So why don't we have some twilight races over summer uh, under lights when it's much more pleasant, there's not as uh, much heat of the day, uh, and the cars look so spectacular. Frames coming out of the exhaust, brake disc glowing, that sort of thing. So I think it's a great move by supercars, and I think you'll see a bit more of it in coming years. Will that pit crew get sacked now? Look, it's a big team. Mercedes have got uh, something like 500 people working in the team. Wow. There'll be a couple of heads with a roll, or they'll be put on the bench at the very least. Um, look, you know, it was a lot of pressure at the time. As I said, they weren't sure which car was going to come in. It was a very late call to bring them in under the virtual safety car. Look, I think there'll be a lot of uh, gnashing your teeth, a lot of investigation, and uh, a few bums will be severely kicked. Yes, exactly. Tomo, we will talk next week. Thank you so much for that. Good on you guys. All right, we've got former Matilda Kath Canuli coming up soon, right here on Afternoon Sport. Well, we're just weeks away now from both the A-League and the W-League starting. And uh, look, it's really promising, isn't it, right across the country that restrictions are easing and hopefully we're going to get uh, good crowds at games. It's going to be looking a little differently, but um, someone who can give us the full insight is former Matilda, assistant coach of the Western Sydney Wanderers women's team, Kath Canooley. How are you? Good, thanks, Tim and Shane. Going very well, thanks yourselves. Yeah, good, good, real good. And, and not far away now, huh? No, it's getting closer and closer and it's uh, really, really exciting to get this year's W League underway finally. You know, throughout the year, we're a bit unsure about what was happening with the W League, but to see it kicking off on the 27th of December is is fantastic. Now, before we start talking about the W League and and your team, the Western Sydney Wanderers in particular, let's just have a a little snapshot of women's sport. It's just amazing how, well, it's not amazing because it's always been good, but it's just growing exponentially, isn't it? Uh, That WBBL, the, the Women's Big Bash League final the other day, it was a cracker. Yeah, it's unbelievable to see, you know, just even when you're flicking through the TV channels and seeing all these, you know, top-level uh, female athletes and, you know, how how great female sport is. And just it's awesome to to see for young kids that they've got so many role models across so many different sports that they can aspire towards as well. It's just fantastic. It's come a long way since you were playing for the Matildas and that's not that long ago, is it? Like a, from a money perspective, from a facilities perspective, give us a little bit of an insight from your story. Yeah, of course. You know, I always um, grew up in an Italian household, so I was soccer mad, um, loved football, thought my whole life that I was just going to become a footballer. I never knew what the actual outcome was going to be. But, you know, it was really tough back in our days and, you know, people before us as well, it was even harder again. But, you know, these days now, it's it's a career opportunity for young females to be able to pursue, you know, football and, and go all the way, you know, up to becoming a Matilda. Um, but there is just so many different pathways that you can take now. There's the college system, there's professionalism that you can go through, uh, the European 
our side of things. And, you know, just for me to see the game where it is today, it makes me super happy. Kath, what was it like growing up? Do you have to play on boys' teams? Yeah, we did. So for myself, my pathway was going through um, the Marconi Stallions boys' team, which, you know, back in those days, it was hard enough um, trying to make that team as a boy. So to try and to make that team as a female and the only female um, that's ever played for the club in the boys' side of things in, in those early days, it was hard, you know, and the hurdles that we went through as young female athletes back then. At the age of 13, I actually had to move into an all-age women's team because we didn't have the stepping stones like we do today with the, you know, the under-14s and 15s and 17s and so on, um, young girls' teams that they have today. And when you did start uh, playing in the top league, it's not like the facilities. The Western Sydney Wanderers facilities are just phenomenal, aren't they? They're, they're, they're best, some of the best in the world when you go out to Blackdown and have a look at both the ovals themselves and the gym and everything else. It wasn't quite like that when you were playing, Kath. No, definitely not. I remember, you know, training days where all the parents and the girls would have to turn their own lights on, you know, the headlights on in the car to be able to get a session out. Um, you're, you're training in, in grass that's like knee high just to get a session out before, you know, the old W League, which was called the Summer League. Um, there was so many different things. You know, when your coaches, your physio, your psychologist, your nutritionist, everything, he, they were all in one back then. You know, you didn't have the luxuries of, of what we have today. And, and like you said, the, the facilities that we work with now um, are phenomenal. Not that all W League clubs are at that standard, but slowly, slowly, I think, you know, Wanderers, um, are paving the way for, for the women's side of things to be able to allow the girls to play their trade in, in such a great facility. Cass, I've heard from girls' teams that the girls had to wear hand-me-downs from the blokes and the change rooms were, were subpar. How was that for you? Yes, that, that's for sure. We were lucky to have um, change rooms. I know all our treatment was done, you know, just on the floor on the side of the field. Um, change rooms, it's pretty much take your kit off wherever and, and put a and put a strip on. I've got fond memories of, of those days. I actually, during COVID, I'd done a big clean out and I put on my first Australian kit. And still to this day, it's still about four sizes too big for me. <laughs> I actually wanted to take it in and show the girls. So when they get this really nice fitted, um, you know, kits that they get these days compared to what we were using. And like you said, they'll hand me down from, from the men's team majority of the time. Now, I, I work for the Wanderers. I, I must make that and have my hand up in the air. But it's very easy to say uh, whether you work for them or you don't. It, it's it's such a good club, isn't it? Yeah, it's a uh, you know, family-filled club. It's a culture that's been building since its inception. You know, there's a lot of people that have been there since day one, myself included. And, you know, we're so lucky to, to have the club in Western Sydney. But the culture is just fantastic. Kath, the W League had some amazing international players last year. It's not looking so good for bringing some of those amazing players on this season. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, it's um, it's a little bit bittersweet, you know, that the internationals can't come out and, and play in the W League this season. But for me, as a as an Australian football coach, I'm very excited to see what the next generation of kids that actually will get a, an opportunity this year to showcase themselves on in the W League. Um, just gives the next generation of girls an opportunity to play in the W League and, and show, you know, the new Matildas coach and, you know, show us exactly where Australia's at on, on the map in terms of where our depth is at with women's football. Um, but I think it's going to be really exciting. I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, newcomers and a lot of new talent come through the W League this season. 
Just saw a little uh, tweet from uh, the Wanderers uh, um, showing a, a small interview with Margot Chavez, who's one of these young players. Uh, hers is a remarkable story, isn't it? A, a girl from the gong. Yeah, definitely. You know, she's um, been on, on the radar um, for a couple of years now. And, you know, Margot's a, a young talent that, you know, has just come out of nowhere. And she's also, she's been training with us since since the preseason. She's been doing fantastic. You know, she she grew up with her father living overseas and there's a, a big backstory to that. And she's come from um, France and now she's landed herself in, in Australia. So it's it's an amazing story. Kath, we've got the Women's World Cup coming up in Australia in 2023. That has to be exciting news. Yeah, look, um, if you would have asked me 10, 15 years ago that we'll be seeing the Women's World Cup in Australia, I'd probably laugh. But to see it come through, you know, I was up late at night waiting for the announcement to come through. And for me, it's a dream come true, not only for young females in Australia, but all kids, young boys, young girls, to be able to um, see, you know, these absolute world-class athletes in Australia I think it's going to be a phenomenal World Cup. I think Australia and New Zealand are actually going to put on a, a great show for, for everybody. Well, to you and uh, Dean and Megzi and the whole coaching staff and the W League team for the Western Sydney Wanderers, all the very best for the season. And hopefully we'll catch up with you real soon on Afternoon Sport. Thank you very much, guys. All the best. Coming up, Rob Gilbert. Great to have your company this Tuesday on Afternoon Sport and it is time to get a, a full wrap of what's happening in AFL and some of the other sports about with Rob Gilbert. How are you, Rob? Hey, Jimmy. How are you, mate? G'day, Rob. How's things, mate? Hey, Shane. I'm very well, boys. Now, Rob, can you try and tell us how the AFL draft works? Because I read the article that you sent me and I'm still trying to work it out. <laughs> mate, I think the uh, the clubs are still trying to work it out. So, so it works like this. So this will be... Uh, a virtual event like pretty much everything else this year. It's on Wednesday night. And uh, the the setup looks like this, that uh, that Adelaide have got the number one draft pick, but the Western Bulldogs have the player who is most likely to be the number one draft, Jamara Hagen, tied to their club academy. So the situation is that Adelaide can nominate him as the number one draft pick, but then the Bulldogs can use what are referred to as draft points mm. to outbid them. Mm. I'm trying to okay. say <laughs> so, uh, so the Bulldogs need to have accrued enough draft points, which they've done through a recent um, pick swap with the Giants, right? So they've tallied up enough points around 2,400. So that so the scenario looks like this. Adelaide pick Jamara Hagen, who many have uh, compared to, to Buddy Franklin. Uh, he's got elite stats according to champion data. Uh, he played for the Oakley Chargers in the 2019 NAB League and uh, and had 50 marks at an average of 3.9, wow. six average oh, score wow. involvements wow. and 2.7 goals. So he, he's a quality player. Uh, so the risk there is that, um, that the Crows may have identified another player that they want, but they could pick him just to get these draft points. So the alternative is then that they choose one of the other top flight players. And the, the names that we're hearing are Logan McDonald from WA. He's a 196-centimetre tall inside 50 target. Riley Tilthorpe, a, a midfielder uh, who they need to uh, stock up on because they've lost Brad Crouch to the Saints. Quality player, of course, but he has a groin injury. And then Elijah Hollins. Uh, he uh, is the, the player who's next nearest to Hugel Hagen, but he's coming off an ACL. 
and clubs are notoriously a little mm. concerned about picking players coming off big injuries like that. So did, did that make any sense, Sue? Yeah, it's, no, it did. I've written it all down. I've got the advocates next to me. <laughs> but it's up to you, Shane. You've got the next question. Well, the next question is, is around, um, as you said, Adelaide getting the first draft pick. Um, but you look on the, the list there, Essendon, there's three picks in a row. How does that work? So there's lots of, um, of trading goes on between draft picks, um, particularly when uh, when players uh, at the end of the season. Um, so so those sorts of trades are, are common in the AFL for, for uh, clubs to, to, to get uh, um, priority draft picks, uh, uh, or better draft picks, I should say, because mm-hmm. there is an actual priority draft pick that the AFL can, can give to a club if they've been uh, performing particularly poorly for a while. So so that's pretty much the way it works. But see, guys, the, the big challenge this year, of course, is that the, the exposed form. You've mm. had most of the players on the Eastern Seaboard haven't had the chance to play. Those in South Australia and WA and to a certain extent the Northern Territory, uh, those players come in with form. So, so there's going to have to be a, a sense of instinct, study, uh, it's going to be a matter of whether some clubs made the effort to actually view players well in advance and, and did their forward planning upwards of uh, 12 months ago, which they will have needed to do, or whether they relied mm. on video. So so the sad thing about this draft is that there will be players who, who only would have matured in this year's uh, hothouse environment of, of elite football that, that won't get their chance this year and, um, and they're going to have to wait till next year and persist. Yeah, that's been a bit of a signpost of the year, though. Unprecedented things have happen right throughout and we're going to see Olympic athletes who may have performed in 2020 who will be forced to retire before 2021 if we look at other sports. Now Rob, we've got Corey McKernan, an absolute legend of North Melbourne, two-time premiership player coming on the show on Thursday so we will get a little bit of a a review from him about the night before but uh, you do keep a a close eye on the English Premier League. I noted this morning that uh, Sam Kerr kicked three goals in the Women's League and injured herself celebrating against West Ham but uh, crowds back for the EPL yeah, that's right. So members of clubs are, are bidding to be one of the 2,000 at certain clubs. Uh, Liverpool was one of them, Spurs another, uh, Spurs uh, and Liverpool on top of the ladder. It's going to be a brilliant season. But having been to Anfield myself and, and had the good fortune to sit in the cop, uh, it's um, it's just one of the, the, the sporting cathedrals uh, around the world. And, uh, and reading um, an article on the BBC um, – there was a quote from the the ground announcer who's been there for 49 years now, George Sefton, uh, who plays You'll Never Walk Alone every week. I had the good fortune to meet him. He comes on uh, my podcast as a regular guest, as it turns out, and and he uh, he said that the uh, the the atmosphere that that 2,000 people created, 270 day 271 days in fact uh since the the last time there had been a crowd was was just one of the most memorable moments in the five decades he's been the ground announcer at that Mm -hmm. great ground so so it's great to see that the crowds are are gradually coming back we all know that the um situation with uh, COVID-19 is is uh well and truly uh, far from over in the UK and and most of Europe in fact most of the world but uh it is good to see that um that the uh, the Premier League is finding a way to start to get the fans back in because uh, whilst it's 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 um, not bad from home to listen to the to the canned crowd uh, it's another thing altogether even 2,000 people yeah. make a noise and to hear that real noise yeah I know back here in Australia we love our we love our footy but uh, it's something different over there in the UK isn't it it's really really tribal and there's just no question about it I mean you, you you've 
you've been to plenty of games yourself, Shane. You know yeah. what it's all about. That uh, um, until you actually go to a match and uh, and you're involved in uh, the um, the whole atmosphere, the the arrival at the ground, um, finding a spot in the stadium, mm-hmm. uh, singing the songs. Um, it's just something again altogether. Yeah, just just finally, Rob, Peter Ellis. Look, we saw Richie Benno pass away a few years ago and I had the great opportunity to work a lot with Richie, the voice of cricket. We still have Phil Liggett, the voice of cycling. There are some voices, and I know that you interviewed Martin Tyler on your own uh, podcast, Box to Box, uh, for the World Game, but we lost a, a great, didn't we, um, this week. Peter Ellis, just those dulcet tones uh, for the game of golf, uh, just mellifluous. There was something that was just silky smooth and just golf about Peter Ellis. Uh, he he was a, a a child of of a golfing dynasty in his own right. He was born in Berlin, funnily enough, while his father was uh, a club pro um, in Germany. And uh, when he was born, uh, he weighed in at six point seven kilograms, uh, which was meant to be a European record at the time. Um, you know, he had um, he won three British PGAs. Um, he had five top 10 finishes in the Open. Um, he, uh, he, he played in eight Ryder Cup teams winning and he also played the Masters, didn't make the cut, but, uh, but in his Ryder Cup efforts, he beat Arnold Palmer um, when he was at his wow. peak. So he was a quality player in his own right. And, uh, and, and the, the story goes, though, that, um, that he, he had his, his big break uh, uh, when um, uh, he was flying back from Ireland and uh, just chatting to a friend how he'd missed a chance in that week's tournament. And uh, as it turned out, his story was heard by a BBC producer, a fellow by the name of Ray Lakeland, who was sitting behind him, who contacted him during the week and asked him if he'd like to join them to commentate during the Open, which he was playing at. And uh, he said, I'm only 30. I'm trying to win the tournament. <laughs> but they said, just come around after your round and have a chat. And, uh, and, that's, um, and that's where it all started. And he passed away um, this week at the age of 89. So I still was planning to, uh, uh, to attend the, um, the 150th anniversary of, uh, of the Open at uh, St Andrews in a couple of years' time. And, uh, and by all accounts, still in cracking form right up until the death. Mm. All right, Rob, thank you so much. Good to chat. And uh, as we leave this segment of Afternoon Sport, let's listen to a little bit of Peter Ellis. Well, Jack has safely sailed over the out-of-bounds, putting a little bit of pressure on Seve, who plays safely up the left, well away from the out-of-bounds. That's it for Afternoon Sport today. We'll be with you Monday to Friday every week. Hit subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss it. A big thank you goes out to our guests today, Rob Gilbert, Kath Canooley and John Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, O'Brien Beer. And, of course, he is he's a bit like what Russell Crowe is to acting. He's Dan McHugh. He's our masterful producer. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with your daily dose of sports news. It's been good, Chano. We'll see you then.